Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Most time in the Ben Jurassic show as I speak. It is Thursday, May 13th, 2021. And the headlines in the New York Times, it's pretty much the headlines in every newspaper in the country these days. Mobs in the street as Israel and Gaza are bombarded. Yes, indeed, war has broken out uh, in the Middle East. And uh, so I think we haven't discussed the Middle East in a long time on this show, so why not? Uh, I've brought in our eminent Middle Eastern scholar. I'm smiling when I say that. He's just sort of our jack-of-all-trades scholar on all things politics uh, in this country and uh, in the world. So without further ado, uh, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. It's always a highlight of my month. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago, and I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Win a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Um, and I also, uh, I, did my, um, I did my graduate work on, in Middle East politics, though, so um, uh, I, I sort of switched focuses mid-career, um, but it's still something I follow and, and, and teach. I, not, I don't write as much about it as I used to, but, um, but I, you know, I keep my eye on things and um, this is bad. This is this is a bad scene over there right now. This is not a good situation. Yes. Uh, so we'll get into it. I just want to uh, reassure listeners who uh, love to hear David Ferris talk about uh, American politics. Well, there's a lot of American political fallout from the conflict in the Middle East. We'll be getting into that. That's on my mind. I'm thinking of the New York mayoral race. Uh, but uh, we'll also do a little Liz Cheney talk and, of course, updates on Joe Manchin uh, and uh, Senator Sinema. Uh, from Arizona. Everybody loves it when David Ferris uh, riffs on Joe Manchin. Um, you just wrote an essay for uh, the week, which I urge everybody to check out about um, the politics of the Middle East, about uh, Israel's relationship with the Palestinians uh, and the position that the American government has taken, particularly during the Trump years, which has probably not worked well to anybody for anybody's purposes, even if uh, uh, Netanyahu would say it was a great thing for Israel. Why don't you just start with your just your general thoughts, David, about what's going on, uh, what has been going on in the Middle East over the last week or so? 
Yeah, well, it's um, it's just a continuation of uh, what is at this point um, like a hundred year long tragedy, um, which is unresolved. It's it's like the festering wound at the at the heart uh, of the Middle East and many of its problems. Um, and uh, and here we get another one of these periodic flare ups of violence um, that that seems so shocking to people because we've had a few years of you know re- relative what, what counts for relative calm in, in this conflict. Uh, has been has been violently interrupted with what looks to me like the the worst violence um, and the most ominous violence, uh, just in terms of its contours, this whole century. Um, you know, the, the, there's proximate causes here, right? Like um, uh, there's a there's this court case where um, uh, Israel is trying to evict um, a number of Palestinian families from East Jerusalem on this like extremely flimsy pretext um, that the land that their houses are on w- belonged to Jewish religious associations before the creation of Israel in 1948. Right? Um, and, uh, you know, the, before they stopped the hearing, it looked like the Israeli, uh, the highest court in Israel was going to, was going to go along with this. Um, and, and it's terrible. These people have been in their houses since like 1957. They're just going to toss them out and replace them with, uh, with, with Jewish Israeli settlers. Um, and uh, it's been going on for so long that people, they, most people don't even talk about East Jerusalem as occupied territory anymore, but that's what it is. Right? Um, Israel, since, uh, since 1967, has, um, has moved hundreds of thousands of, um, of Jewish settlers from, uh, from pre-1967 Israel into territories that Israel acquired by force in the Six-Day War in 1967. And East Jerusalem is one of those places. Um, and so... Uh, the the sixty seven war remains unresolved. I mean the the original Palestinian refugee crisis that 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 came about as a result of the the creation of Israel is unresolved. Um, there's millions of Palestinian refugees. There's millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and, and Gaza Strip that that are stateless, um, and and uh, you know deprived of of many of the of the civil and political rights that we take for granted here. Um, and that's you know that's that's the sort of underlying cause, right? Like something happened this week. <laughs> to cause the violence with this unrest based on these evictions. Um, it, it happened, unfortunately, to coincide with um, what they call Jerusalem Day in, in Israel, which is a celebration of Israel's conquest of East, East Jerusalem. Um, and, and the Israelis uh, in, in Jerusalem do this extremely, I just think, really crappy and provocative thing where they march through the, the city celebrating the conquest of their neighbors. <laughs> Um, whatever you think of what happened in 1967, it's just, it's not a very nice thing to do. And, um, and so th- these things all happen to, ha- to, to, to coincide with one another, right? You had the, the unrest over the, invic- the evictions. Um, you had, uh, some security concerns over the, over the march itself. Um, you, you had some protesters inside, um, the, the Muslim holy site in, in Jerusalem, the Haram al-Sharif. Um, and then Israel went in and, and, and uh, and cracked skulls and, and, and dragged people out of there. Um, and that, you know, all of this caused Hamas, which is the political entity, uh, slash terrorist group in, in charge of Gaza to start firing rockets indiscriminately into civilian areas of, of Israel, um, which I want to make it really clear is not something I endorse at all. So, um, it's just a mess. And the, the thing that, you know, step aside from the details of this, right? Because this, this may change slightly by the time your listeners hear this. The, the, the bigger picture and the most ominous thing about this violence to me is that the violence has spread to, to pre-1967 Israel, right? There are a lot of reports of, uh, uh, of violence between 
Jewish Israelis, and then the Palestinians who who are full citizens of Israel, um, and there there are about two, you know close to two million of them. Um, the Israelis call them Israeli Arabs, <laughs> but they're Palestinians, right? Um, and so there was a really significant minority in in the in the in the Israel that is internationally recognized. Um, there is a large Palestinian minority, and relations between that minority and and the majority, like, not great, right? But they're not violent. Um, and so this is, this is new to me. I, you know, we haven't really seen um, significant communal violence within internationally recognized Israel. And that, to me, is the thing that, that is scariest and, and suggests to me that this could really spiral out of control um, and, and involve neighboring countries and, uh, you know, involve the, the Russians and the Chinese and, and the U.S., um, and it just, it's like somebody really needs to step in here and, and, and show some leadership. Um, and it's just, it's not happening. And that's, that's what's really scary. Well, as we speak, just, uh, I just saw the, the latest stories that uh, Egypt has announced that it will act as an intermediary to try to broker peace. There's a lot of limitations uh, uh, on that front, but we'll just put that aside. I have been thinking about this for about two or three years, uh, David. And I'll share you this thought I've had, that Israel has been lulled into a false sense of security during the Trump years because Donald Trump, for purely political reasons, uh, it just gave a green light to whatever uh, Netanyahu wanted in Israel. Uh, and they pretended as though the Palestinians didn't exist and the Palestinian conflict had been settled. Uh, and so, for instance, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, the world didn't cave in. And Trump's attitude was, see, told you. Uh, and I remember like the Republicans, when they were citing examples of Trump's success, would say he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And the whole time I'm thinking of this, I'm like, this is not good. This is not going to be, work out well. The, you cannot pretend a problem away. Right. You, you just, just ignoring a problem, ignoring a conflict, ignoring what you said, years and years of hatred, they're not going to just make it disappear. And lo and behold, this is what we see. Do you agree with that analysis? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the stuff that the Trump administration did went, went well beyond moving the embassy to Jerusalem. I mean, the, the Trump administration's Israel policy might as well have been written by, by Netanyahu himself, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, who's, who's a, a far-right politician who's been uh, around since the 90s. If this is real, really an argument for, for prime ministerial term limits. I mean, this, this dude was first prime minister in 1996, man, uh, so 26 years ago. That's some, that's some Chicago stuff right there, you know? <laughs> the, 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 the daily of Israel. Um, but, I mean, the Trump administration was like a dream come true for this dude. I mean, he moved to the embassy, he, uh, he, he recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is, a, which is occupied territory that was taken from Syria in 1967. Um, he had Mike Pompeo march out and say that the settlements in the West Bank are, no, are not illegal according to international law, which of course they absolutely are. Um, and uh, just, just one, you know, one thing after another uh, that, that seemed just designed to demoralize the Palestinians. And when all hell didn't break loose immediately, they're like, see, we told you we could move the embassy to Jerusalem and we did it and nothing happened. So shut up. Um, and, and I, I do think that there's a, there's a, there is a sort of like alarmism about, about which people talk about this region, like that, you know, it's just one, you know, one little thing could set, set the whole region ablaze. And I, I think that the politics have proven to be like a little more, more resilient than that, but there are limits. Um, and if you're a young Palestinian today, uh, a really significant percentage of the population of Palestine was not even alive 
for like the Oslo process, you know, when, when they tried to create the Palestinian state in the 90s, that fell apart really spectacularly in, in 2000 at the end of the Clinton administration. They weren't alive for that. All they know, they've lived their whole lives um, and neither their leaders nor the Israeli leaders are making any serious efforts um, to create a Palestinian state or, or to move to some sort of binational state or, or to do anything. It's just the status quo is, is like statelessness and repression and economic misery. Um, and, uh, and they, and they're blamed for it, you know, <laughs> like, uh, whatever, you know, whatever you think of what, of what happened at Camp David in 2000, right? This was when, uh, Bill Clinton brought, uh, Yasser Arafat and, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak together to, to get this thing settled once for all. It fell apart. Um, everybody blamed Arafat. Uh, there were offers made in retrospect. Yeah, probably the Palestinians should have taken them. Whatever, man. I mean, they weren't even alive for this stuff, right? Um, and, and people want to blame the whole Palestinian population for what's happening. Um, and of course, there are, you know, there are violent extremists in, in, in the West Bank and in, in the Gaza Strip, right? It's a, it's a problem that will have to be dealt with. Um, but the underlying reality here is that, like, no one is trying, is no one is trying to help the Palestinians. Um, and when you have millions of people who are, are hopeless and repressed and demonized, um, they're not just going to, you know, they're not just going to take it forever. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's sort of the dynamic. And the, the really problematic part is that, um, you know, the, the violent extremists, uh, you know, there's violent extremists on both sides here, um, but the ones in, in Palestinian, uh, Hamas, when they do the rocket stuff or they, um, in the early 2000s, where they were doing so many suicide bombings, um, not, not only are these things fundamentally immoral, right, but they also had the effect of like obliterating the Israeli left. Um, so that there, there really, there really is no politically significant left in Israel right now, as a consequence, because there's one thing we know from the study of terrorism and political science um, is that terrorism sends people running directly into the arms of people that promise them security, yeah. um, and it, it shifts things to the right in almost every case. Um, and so uh, it, it's a it's a situation that that looks hopeless and it, and it feels hopeless, um, but if it is treated as such by policymakers. Um, this is just, uh, you know, they're fulfilling their own prophecy, right? If, 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 if Biden wakes up every morning and he's like, well, this is hopeless, <laughs> then, then it is hopeless. Right? Like somebody with power has to put pressure yeah. on, on these actors to, to, to do something different and come back to the table and talk. Um, and, uh, it's going to be very tough because the people who run Israel right now fundamentally do not want to create a Palestinian state, right? They, they, the long, the long range plan is to annex as much of the West Bank as possible, they don't want anything to do with the Gaza Strip. They don't even have a plan for that, right? Um, but they want to annex as much as possible of the, of the West Bank and, and call it a day and just hope that the Palestinians will accept that. Um, and having spent some time in the region and having talked to Palestinians, um, they're like, yeah, I mean, you know, if it's 200 years, it's 200 years, but this is, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not going to do this to us. Um, and so it's, it's a really it's a volatile situation. It's, it's, it's really a sad situation, too. I mean, it's really... In addition to everything else, it's really a human tragedy um, because I think most people in, in in Israel and most people in Palestine they don't want to live like this. You know, um, it's just like they just can't figure out a way to to to, to solve it. Yeah, and one thing that uh, is frightening is the specter of an Israeli invasion of Gaza, which has been presented in the newspapers today. This show will be dropping Saturday, so Lord knows what the world will look like in just two days. Uh, but I can't think of, and again, I'm not a student of the region. I just follow it in the newspapers, but I can't think of, um, in my lifetime, 
uh, an Israeli invasion that actually benefited Israel. You, you know what I'm saying? Forget about the countries it was invading or the territories it was invading with the people there. I'm just saying Israel. I can't think of an invasion. I think in Lebanon, Gaza. I just cannot think of a time when it actually, when you added it all up and look back a year later, oh, was that good for Israel? You know, aside from soldiers, Israelis getting killed and dollars getting wasted, it just, it was always this precarious, frightening moment that just created more hostility and enmity and life people who are like as you were saying are committed to the destruction of israel i can't see anything good coming out of it and yet they're talking david somehow or other as though an invasion would curtail the firing of rockets into israel for more than what i don't know two months three months do you follow what i'm saying like an invasion right I find it just frightening that they're even talking about it. No, it's scary. I mean, unless they want to send the whole IDF in there and, and occupy the place for 20 years, they're not going to be able to prevent this completely until they have a until they have some kind of political settlement. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the, the history of this conflict, um, even, even when Israel wins uh, one of these wars, it creates a whole other set of problems. Um, and, uh, and, and the leadership seems to have their head in the sand about that. You know, the great example is that Israel invaded uh, Lebanon in 1982 they wanted to throw the, the PLO out of South Lebanon and they wanted to get um, Arafat and his friends out of Beirut. And they did that because Israel is a very, it's a powerful country, right? They have a qualitative mil military edge over their neighbors. Obviously they have a qualitative military edge over a bunch of stateless, penniless people who don't even have like a, a, an army. Um, but they, they went in there and they, they cleared the PLO out of Lebanon. And they were like, we did it. Um, and then they got Hezbollah, right? Um, then they had to, then they had to occupy South Lebanon uh, for, for, for almost 20 years. And what they got out of that was like a miniature Vietnam. You know, every year, um, you know, there was, there was a bunch of uh, uh, Israeli kids went home in body bags because, uh, because the Israeli leadership decided they needed to occupy Lebanon. Um, and so I think Israel has become addicted to the use of force to solve political problems that, that fundamentally can't be solved by force. Um, and uh, nobody in Gaza is going to is going to want to stop firing rockets at Israel um, until they have a country and some hope for the future, and uh, that's that's not to defend what's what 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 Hamas is doing. Hamas is awful. I mean, it's just like an awful group of people, man. Um, and if you know, if you're somebody you were born in Israel in like 1984, you got little kids, and you're not particularly political, you know, like you don't deserve to die either. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's not like uh, it's. Uh, I, I always try to tell my students, you know. These are all people, you know, these are all human beings. Um, and it's just, it's so tragic and sad um, that nobody's been able to figure this out. But, you know, American presidents have washed their hands of this stuff for most of the century. And because it's inconvenient, because it has tripped up every president since World War II who, who tried to do something about it. Um, and it's not even clear that like American mediation is, is helpful because we're not a neutral party, right? We're, 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 a, we're an ally of Israel. Um, and, and public opinion in this country is very much on the side of Israel. It's changing a little bit, but it's not changing super fast. So there are, there are political limitations for, for what Biden can do here. But I mean, fundamentally, he, he, I think he has to get involved to, to some extent because this, uh, this, this could really spiral out of control in, in a way um, that would involve America at a, at a later point where things have, have, have become irretrievable. You know what I mean? By the way, I would not, I, I want to make this point very clear. In any way, is the United States a role model 
for Israel in uh, the restraint of military uh, invasions. I, I've lived through quite a few, starting with the Vietnam War. I was a kid, but I was living there. And the United States, if they were urging Israel not to invade Gaza, would not be uh, preaching what it practices. Uh, the United States, we've the last 20 years, two wars in the Middle East, two of them. And we're still, we still haven't completely extricated ourselves from either one. And I, David, I'll go so far, you could disagree with me. I can't think of any time, I'm just going through Israel, anytime an invasion has worked to their long term advantage, I can't think th in the United States. I think of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. I think of Russia in Ukraine. I can't think of any time a, an imperialistic invasion by some bully has worked to the advantage of the country that's doing the invading. I And yet, it boys will be boys because it's it goes on all around the world all the time. And you look at the, the record of post-World War II, American military interventions, it's, it's not a good scene. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Vietnam, it's, it's Iraq, it's Afghanistan. Um, and people will always point and say like, well, we, you know, we got what we wanted out of the, of the first Gulf War, right? Um, when, when Saddam invaded Kuwait and we went in and we threw him out in a few weeks. And um, I'm like, no, <laughs> that war resulted in, in a, a semi-permanent like American occupation of, of Iraq or uh, like we established protectorates over northern and northern and southern Iraq. It got us involved in Iraqi politics, and it really culminated in the Iraq War, which is a complete disaster. I mean, if, if we're going to war for oil, <laughs> if that's what this is all about, the cost of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, will the total cost of those wars could probably be around $6 trillion when you factor in um, taking care of the wounded veterans and stuff. Uh, that's that's more than the, than the value of all the oil imported into the United States since 1980. Um, and so we're throwing good money after bad here. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's a militaristic mindset. I think it's produced in part by enormous military budgets that people are like, well, we got this, you know, we got this military, we're going to do something with it. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and Israel has the ability to, to inflict pain and suffering on, on their adversaries, uh, pretty much limitless. Um, and, uh, it seemingly is just does not occur to Netanyahu to, to negotiate rather than to bomb. Um, you know, if they want to, they want to take out some Hamas leaders, I, you know, fine. There's whoever you take out, somebody's going to be next in line, you know? Um, and then, then where are you? You know, you, you still haven't negotiated and in, in, seriously in, in almost 20 years. Um, and, and that, that process has to resume, I think at some point in some, in some way, shape or form, um, if, if we're ever going to get out of this, we're going to get out of this mess. Do you have any hope for negotiation? Not, not really. I mean, you know, that's hopefully, if nothing else, uh, we, we negotiate a way uh, to get Hamas to stop firing rockets and, and, and something that doesn't result in an invasion of Gaza, right? That's that's good. It'll prevent a lot of human tragedy in the, in the near term, right? And of course, I'm for that. Um, the bigger picture is that the Prime Minister of Israel, and in fact, most of the people of other people who want to be prime minister of Israel have absolutely no intention of negotiating anything that looks like the parameters that were presented in 2000, um, that where, where Israel was, was going to return most of the West Bank um, and Gaza Strip and create a Palestinian state. Um, and uh, it was, so it's the, the sad thing here is that we're further from that agreement than we were 20 years ago. Um, and we're further of it, 
from it because the center of gravity in Israeli politics has shifted to the right. Um, and the and the violence of the last 20 years has convinced so many Israelis that they simply cannot live in peace with a with a Palestinian state on their on their borders. Um, and uh, as as people have been screaming into the wind for for years and years and years, you know, folks, it's either that, <laughs> or you you run an indefinite apartheid state uh, where you you know you, you keep um, millions of Palestinians in the West Bank stateless and without political any real political rights. Um, and at a certain point, there's there's going to be many more Palestinians. And you take all this to the Gaza Strip, West Bank, uh, and Israel proper. You know, pre-1967 Israel. There's going to be way more Palestinians in this territory at some point than there are Jewish Israelis. Um, it's a it's a demographic time bomb for the for the state of Israel if it, if it wants to uh, if it wants to have this 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 Jewish state. Um, uh, the by far the best long term move for the state of Israel is is to make a deal with the Palestinians um, and to and to give up. You know, you don't have to give up everything. That's why it's a negotiation. But uh, but in the long run, uh, you know, it's it sort of reminds me of what you said about about the uh, about them getting comfortable under Trump, right? It's like they're passing this problem along to their grandkids, you know, and it's and it's not going to be pretty. Um, I don't know if I, you know we may not live to see that, but um, I, I wish people could look at the long term a little bit more here, you know. Uh, by the way, a lot of parallels uh, when I look at uh, from again from afar Israeli politics. And the, uh, the its present condition and politics in this country with Trump, Netanyahu, and Trump—a lot of parallels. Uh, each of them have a devoted and dedicated following that's probably not a majority, but is so solid and so cult-like and so unbreakable and unshakable uh, that they will always have a position of power and prominence just by virtue of of, of that um, allegiance. And in Netanyahu's case, of course, they have a prime minister. Uh, so it's a different, he, he could, he doesn't even need a majority of electoral college. We talk about the electoral college in Israel. You don't even need a majority of electoral college. You just have to get enough votes, cut enough deals with enough, uh, other parties. It's very bizarre in, uh, alliances. He could stay in, he hasn't won an election. How many times have they had elections, David? Five to four? I've lost track. I've had four national elections. Four national elections in the last couple of years. Netanyahu has not won decisively in any of those elections, and yet he's still in power. The the, the comparison to Chicago is striking. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the further the further we get into Israeli politics, the less useful I am because I don't speak Hebrew and I, I don't follow this stuff as closely as I do the international stuff. Um, but the Israeli political, the Israeli electoral system makes the American electoral system looks like look like a like a work of genius. <laughs> um, the, 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 the threshold for representation in their parliament is like way too low. You've got too many small parties um, who, who cannot possibly win a majority, but to prevent the larger parties from forming a majority. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's <laughs> when you have this many general elections in a short period of time, it's just it's a sign of systemic political failure. Um, it's, it's been happening in, it, in, in Italy um, this century, too. It's, it's just like. Nobody can hang on to power for long because the coalitions are too unstable. Um, there's, there's a happy medium between the American two-party system and a system uh, like like the Netherlands that you know the, the Party for Animals has two seats in, in, you know, in the in the Dutch Parliament. Um, but uh, it's it's a sign of uh, I think some some level of disarray inside Israel. You know uh, there are other issues there are other issues in, in domestic Israeli politics besides the conflict. You know. Um, 
you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get talked about much, but, uh, you know, the, but parties who, who represent the idea of negotiation and compromise just, just cannot seem to, to sniff a, a parliamentary majority there. And, and that's, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, now let's talk about the politics of the Middle East uh, in this country. Uh, over my lifetime, I've noticed a dramatic change. Uh, it used to be that the most pro-Israeli voice was in the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party had some dissenters. This is before your time, but there was a Chuck uh, Percy of Illinois, Paul Finley, who was a, a congressman from downstate uh, Illinois, both, both Republicans. Uh, and now, of course, the Republican Party is sort of a, a adjunct of Netanyahu's uh, party in Israel. Uh, and I've I've read uh, articles written by allies of Netanyahu, Israeli observers of, of the United States, who've said, for, just give up on uh, secular Jews or uh, reformed Jews being supporters of Israel. Your base of support in the United States is the evangelical Christians. And as long as you can keep evangelical Christians satisfied, uh, you will have the support you need in Israel. This is the advice they're giving. So that means looking the other way, if the party of the evangelicals is supporting white supremacists walking through the streets of Charlottesville saying, uh, Jews will not replace us. It's very bizarre trying to make sense of any of this. Uh, David is very difficult. It's very illogical. It's even more illogical than Chicago politics, as which I find astounding, because uh, I thought that was the weirdest place of all. And uh, so Biden, I read your essay in the um, the week, and I was just thinking, Biden's got problems, because if he goes too far to uh, trying to be a, uh, what, uh, an unbiased mediator, and looking out for Palestinian concerns at the table, the Trumpites will be pounding him as anti-Israel, saying he supports terrorism, uh, linking him to Iran. You can pretty much write the propaganda as well as I can or expect it. Uh, talk a little bit about the politics of Israel and how they play out in this country. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the most important thing to keep in mind um, is that when you ask people, when a pollster asks someone, you know, who do you sympathize with more, uh, the Israelis or the Palestinians? The, the Israelis have consistently had more support than the Palestinians by, by double digits. You know, right now it's, you know, 20 or 25 points, okay? Um, and, and that means that the cr criticism of Israel, like serious, serious criticism of Israel is like a, it's like a third rail in American politics. Um, like Biden would be taking an enormous political risk um, if he went out and, and condemned Israel for, for what it's doing. Um, you know, you've had American presidents say like, you should stop building settlements, right? Or you should freeze the settlements um, or put pressure on them. You know, uh, Jim, Jim Baker under George H.W. Bush um, once got so mad at the Israelis that he was like, the White House member is whatever it is. Call us when you're serious about peace. And he was talking to the Israelis. Um, but in terms of like, you know, uh, cu cutting off the the aid that we give to, to Israel or, or pivoting, um, it's, it's really risky because the voters are, 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 are more with Israel than they are with the Palestinians. And I think partially that's a product of, um, there was a, an unfortunate convergence of uh, this wave of terrorism in, uh, that, that was unleashed by, by the Palestinians after the collapse of the Camp David talks 
with the war on terror um, so that Palestinian terrorism in the, in the American political mind became indelibly associated with Al-Qaeda and 9-11 and, and, and all this stuff. People just lump it all in. They're like, terrorism is bad, therefore the Palestinians are bad. Um, and, I, you know, no, most people in the U.S. don't don't care and don't want to put any pressure on, on, on the Israeli government. Um, now, there's a little bit of a wrinkle here. You, you mentioned it, um, which is that I think Netanyahu made this an enormous strategic mistake by, by you know, getting involved in American politics and just so openly um, rooting for Trump to, to win and then to win re-election. Um, you remember when Netanyahu came and spoke to, to Congress at the invitation of the, of the House Republicans under Obama? Um, mm-hmm. just, uh, just idiotic stuff because like, you know, you, you think about partisanship in America. Um, if, if too many Democrats come to associate support for Israel with the Republicans, right, they're going to gravitate back towards the Palestinians. Um, and so I, I think that that is a dynamic that's, that's happening. I think younger Americans have more sympathy for the Palestinians in the same way that they're, they're different than their elders on all kinds of political issues. Um, and so in the, in the long run, that could change. Today, <laughs> today, unfortunately, you know, Biden is Biden would be operating in, in the headwinds of, of sort of double digit opposition to, um, to to major revisions. So I think um, what what he could do um, is, you know, take a real stand on the evictions, right? Um, reverse Trump's edicts on on the settlers on the Golan Heights. Um, I, you know, I don't know that they're going to move the embassy, but. Um, you know, to start making some making some quiet threats that you're going to revert, you know, you're obviously going to reverse some of these Trump administration policies. But fundamentally, in my mind, like nothing is going to change in Israel until someone with with more power puts pressure on them to to change. You know, because they, they they're just they're they're too comfortable with this situation. Um, so that so that's just so the, the sort of the domestic politics of it. And and you're right, um, American Jews are are like ten miles to the left of the Israeli government right now. You know, as in the aggregate, right? Um, and uh, the the most important supporters of uh, of Israeli extremism are evangelical Christians, because because the you know the reclamation of the of the of the Jewish kingdom plays a part in the evangelicals like end of times fantasy. Um, and uh, the the Israelis are really playing with the devil here, man. Because I, I just asked them, what happens to the Jews at the end of this prophecy, folks? You know what I mean? It's not good. Um, yeah. So it's yeah, not good. Uh, <laughs> but that's you know that's a, sometimes you got to admit you know you got to acknowledge political reality, and the political reality is very difficult. Um, even you know, like anybody in the squad says like something like mildly supportive of the Palestinians, you know, like everybody in the Republican Party freaks out and calls them terrorists, and um, that's that's what Biden would be facing, um, and he doesn't want to do it. He yeah. doesn't want to deal with any of this stuff, right? He wants to focus on on the U.S. Um, in the same way that Obama did, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes reality. The, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's like the mafia, you know, it's like once you're in, they could get pulled back in again and again and again. Um, and, and in my mind, the best way to avoid that happening would be to, to pressure everyone into a settlement. So this stuff doesn't happen anymore. You know? And I realize it's not as easy as magic wand, but it's not going to happen if we don't try. Yeah. So. And that's the, the the central theme of the essay you just wrote. And uh, we'll probably be talking about that. I didn't realize you were uh, such an expert in this, David, and we'll probably be talking about it uh, more as time goes on, I'm really hoping uh, that we will not be talking about an invasion because I'll just, before we leave the, this topic, repeat, not that my humble little podcast has any impact on Israeli politics, but I again, 
Look at your own history. An invasion has never worked long-term. Never, ever has it worked. And it hasn't worked in the United States long-term. We're still in Afghanistan, despite the promise that we're going to leave. And they're trying to get out of Afghanistan, David, so fast before the Taliban emerge. It's like, hurry up, let's get out of there. Anyway, all right. Um, let's uh, move from the horribly depressing uh, situation in the Middle East to the slightly less depressing situation here in the United States, where the Republican Party has decided that Liz Cheney is too much of a moderate. <laughs> you got to laugh at how insane this is. Liz Cheney, speaking of the Iraqi wars, the architect's daughter is too moderate. Because she says she refuses to subscribe to Donald Trump's big lie theory that the election was stolen from him, even though he clearly lost. You're taking all this. I just, I mean, I can't believe I'm living in a world in which, um, you know, Liz Cheney is not conservative enough for the Republican Party. She's like one, she's like one of the most conservative Republicans in Congress. Um, I mean, she represents one of the most conservative states in, in the U.S. She is a, just a bedrock Republican. Um, and the, the crime that she committed as the third ranking House member, Republican member of the House, um, is that she acknowledges that Joe Biden won the election legitimately, which is a rebuke to Donald Trump, who is still floating around um, in, in our politics like a diseased fish, you know, floating up towards the waterline after it's died. Donald Trump is still around with us. Um, and the Republican Party is terrified of him. I, I think that the, the, the House GOP caucus is, I don't know, half Trump true believers and, and half people that are just like, yeah, that dude's crazy, but I, I, I have to pretend that the election was stolen so that they, so that he doesn't send like his minions to my house to like harass my family. Um, and that, so that my career is not over so that I don't get defeated in a primary next year. And Liz Cheney, uh, you know, I, I disagree with Liz Cheney about pretty much everything in the entire world, but I do give her some grudging respect here because she's pretty much sacrificed her career in Republican politics. Um, to, to acknowledge the reality about the 2020 election um, and, and, to, and to say, to speak um, about how dangerous it is for Donald Trump to continue to insist that the election was stolen without any evidence, um, that he turned the, you know, turned every, you know, most of the rank and file Republicans in America believe that the election was stolen. Um, and, you know, beyond that, that there's like no way that Democrats can win legitimately because, you know, as Rick Santorum would say, blah, people in the cities, you know, vote 20 times and they just steal it. The big city machines just steal it. So weird how they didn't steal it in Florida, right? But, but they stole it in these swing states, you know. Uh, I guess, you know, I guess uh, the people in Miami were like, oh, let's not, let's not do it. You know, I don't want to steal the election. <laughs> um, but uh, but there's, a very there's a very, very, very dangerous dynamic taking over the Republican Party right now. Um, and as, I don't know if you read this political article that... Uh, that was like actually the problem is not the problem is not Liz Cheney's stance on the election is that she can't get along with the other Republicans, um, and it's like yeah she can't get along with the other Republicans because she has to say the lie right that's like the big lie is what what underlies all of this, um, and 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 so you know she's she's not a ranking Republican anymore, um, and uh, she, there's talk that she might run for president you know please have at it. Um, but I don't think it's the, you know, I don't know how much of the vote she's going to get because uh, the, the Trump cult has, has taken over the Republican Party just like top to bottom. And, um, 
And it's, it's really dangerous because if some of those, you know, if some of those tr Trump true believers become the governors of Wisconsin and Michigan and, and the election officials in Arizona and Georgia, um, then, then the plot that they hatched to overturn the election in 2020 really could work in 2024. Like they could pull it off. Um, if they have the right people in charge, if they have congressional majorities, um, they, they could overturn a legitimate election result just because they're like, that's ah, some, some fraud. So we're going to be electoral votes to, to Trump or DeSantis or whoever gets the nomination. Um, and that that's dangerous. It's, it's a very dangerous moment for our democracy. And, and Liz Cheney has kind of fallen on her sword for it. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't like her at all. <laughs> but somebody in that party needs to take a stand. And um, what I'd really like to see out of Liz Cheney is, is an effort to build a caucus um, inside of Congress to, to uh, like a, you know, elections are real ca ca caucus, <laughs> you know, the Trump did not win caucus, like a group of people that is committed um, to reversing the, the, the Trumpian takeover of the Republican Party, um, not because they don't like winning, um, but, but because they have some basic level of respect for the institution of democracy. You know, that, that winning this next election is not more important than American democracy can to continue to exist. Because if they pull this off in 2024, I mean, it's just, it's going to break the country in half, you know? I mean, if they do this, you know, I'll storm the Capitol. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just it's, joking. It's, it, 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 would, it would be violent. I'm totally joking. If the Secret Service is listening. Um, but it's, it would be, it would be violent. And, um, and she's one of the few Republicans who has the integrity to stand up and say so. And in today's GOP, that means you're gone. Uh, as simple as that. That, that. that it's interesting idea about forming a, uh, a Trump lost the election caucus of Republican party members. Uh, we've, in recent shows been wondering about uh, the upcoming, even before 2024, you have the midterms of 2022, which I'm sure you and I will be talking about obsessively uh, the next time you're on the show mm -hmm. or uh, some future show. Uh, and um, Monroe Anderson was uh, expressing concern that if the Republicans take back the House, uh, they would use that majority to immediately p impeach Joe Biden as an act of retribution for the Democrats having impeached Trump twice. Uh, and uh, so I take very seriously the threat uh, to our democracy if the Republicans are to take back the Congress, and I realize that the midterms are very important. That said, I just when you said that, I thought popped out, you know, you could have a situation if where the Liz Cheney's of the Republican Party, let's say there's six of them, caucus with the Democrats to prevent that from happening. You could have that, you know. The, you, you know what I'm saying? They, you could have a situation where they crossed over and voted for whoever. The it wouldn't be Nancy Pelosi. I think she's volunteered to step down, but whoever, and uh, in exchange for committee chairs or something like that. So, I guess anything is possible. But I take very serious the threat of losing in 2022. What's what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, t I take it very seriously, and I I don't think that I don't think that enough rank and file Democrats take it seriously. I mean, there's an attitude right now. People look at Biden's approval rating and they're like, we did it. You know, we cracked the code of American politics. Look, he's popular. And I'm like, man, can I show you a chart of presidential approval ratings? Like going back 70 years, like it gets worse from here. Like this is a high point. Okay. Pat yourselves on the back. But, but this is the high point, right? It's not going to get any better than this in terms of popularity. It's going to get worse. Um, and it's just a reminder that Democrats are sitting on a bunch of legislation that, that could prevent this from happening or do a lot to prevent this from happening. Um, but they can't do it because of our friends in West Virginia and Arizona 
President Manchin and co-president Kirsten Sinema. Um, it looks like Democrats are just going <laughs> to kind of sit on their hands um, and be like, well, you know, I hope we win anyway, even though even though there's an active like, you know, party wide effort to suppress the Democratic vote. Um, I'm committed to this like um, ridiculous idea of bipartisanship and Senate tradition that I don't even understand because I've never read a book. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's the scary thing, right? Is that like, look, you know, just a reminder to everyone, Democrats have a trifecta right now, right? Like we hold the presidency and we have both chambers of Congress. Yes, the majorities are narrow, but, uh, but we have them. Um, and these two knuckleheads are committed to the 60 vote threshold for pretty much everything. Um, and, and I, you know, maybe they're going to walk it back at some point. I hope they will. Right. Um, but if they don't act, right, if they don't, um, do reform of the of, uh, of the districting process um, so that uh, Republicans don't do gerrymandering again. Um, if they don't pass the you know uh, John Lewis Act that um, would give the DOJ some more control over state voting laws, um, if they don't do some of this stuff, they're gonna they're gonna get clobbered. Um, and, it, and it seems like actually, and this is wonderful, the vast majority of elected Democrats get it. You know, I think that they understand, right? Like, like DC statehood is passed out of the house, right? Before the, before the people pack, it passed out of the house. Um, with, I think just, I'd have to go look at the roll call vote, but I think only one, one Democrat voted against that, that bill. Um, and I think that they have 47 or 48 Democrats in the Senate willing to do all of this stuff. Right. And so, um, these, these two people, I know I'm going to be talking about a lot over the next three years. Um, two people, <laughs> two people in the whole country of 331 million people. There are two people preventing critical reforms <laughs> of the electoral system that could prevent an authoritarian takeover of American democracy. And they won't do it because Joe Manchin still thinks he can get 10 Republicans to, to, to sign on to a voting rights bill. It's like, man, you are, you are the last person on earth that believes that. Um, because I, and, the, and the thing that really kills me is that Manchin agrees that some, some, not everything in the For the People Act, but he, he obviously thinks some of this stuff needs to get done. Um, and it's like, okay, <laughs> if that's what you think, then nuke the filibuster and govern the country and let's, let's move on. Yeah. Um, but you need to reinforce the Senate majority. You need to pass DC statehood. Let's get Puerto Rico in there too. Um, you know, you, you need to do uh, universal mail balloting. Uh, you need to, to strengthen the DOJ. I think ideally you'd create a national um, election commission, nonpartisan. Uh, there's, there's so much Democrats could do to, they can't, you know, there's no hundred percent, right? Republicans could still win in 2022, even if they did all this stuff, right? Republicans might still win because the history of midterm elections is, is very grim for the party in power. Um, but, uh, you know, if they don't, you know, if we, if we lose two consecutive elections in 2022 and 2024, I, I'm like very concerned that, that American democracy will be like wiped off the face of the earth. And yeah. I don't think enough of, I don't think enough Democrats, ordinary Democrats, rank and file Democrats know that like this is a, we're, we're living through a huge sense of relief, justifiable that Trump is gone. Um, if somebody believes in the, in the, you know, the, the, the germ theory of disease and is taking, <laughs> is taking COVID seriously instead of trying to get it on purpose um, and, and kill, like, killing as many of their own voters as possible with a preventable disease. That's great, and, and we're all we all have that palpable sense of relief and a palpable sense of like, I'd like to just like watch baseball and have dinner with my family. I I don't want to I don't want to worry about an existential political crisis. It's not fun, um, but I'm sorry, 
we're still living through an emergency. Um, and it's like every Democrat in Congress, except Manchin and Cinema, and I think Feinstein, I'll throw her in there too. I think they, I think they get it. You know, I think that the degree to which I think it's a, an emergency, emergency varies, um, but they're pretty united on, on some of these reforms. And it's just, man, I don't know. They, you know, somebody's got to figure out a way to get to these two, um, or else we're going to be fighting the next two elections, not just with one hand behind our back, but with like one hand behind our back and our, and our adversary like beating the crap out of us <laughs> um, on purpose. Yeah. We could have fixed it and we didn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, close with a little optimism, which I don't even know if, if is warranted, but I'm going to close with it anyway. I think I've, I've never met the man. I've just followed him from afar. Joe Manchin, uh, that Joe Manchin is, I don't know why he subscribes to the notion of bipartisanship, but he's looking for an out. In other words, he's looking for an excuse to say, I tried. And it didn't work. I did my best. Okay, on certain issues, I don't know which one, the, uh, which issue he'll agree to um, uh, strip the uh, the sixty vote minimum away on. I don't know which one. Uh, election reform, infrastructure. I don't know which one. But I have this feel. I don't know cinema well enough to uh, to make a prediction. The other thing is, I don't know if your dear friends on the Republican side. Uh, Susan Collins and the Lisa Murkowski uh, will ever join the Democrats on this endeavor. But I've not given up hope, uh, David, because if I gave up hope, <laughs> what would it do? If I were cynical as I am about Chicago. Uh, so I'm hoping that I, I just think Manchin, there's something about him that strikes me as, you know, he's an operator. And uh, what's your thoughts on that? No, I have optimism too. I mean, if, if I didn't have optimism, like, what's the point? You look at Chicago politics, like, you see a poll with like Lightfoot at 60% and you're like, I give up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but um, yeah, oh I, I mean, the, the news today was like Manchin said, uh, you know, instead of this big, this huge, huge election reform thing, I want to pass this like slim down version of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And um, he has this idea to to fix the Voting Rights Act by, extending pre-clearance to all 50 states um, instead of just the nine um, extremely racist states. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's like, so I think what needs to happen, what would really give me some optimism is if the Democratic leadership was like, uh, okay, there's a choke point here. Let's give him what he wants, okay? Put this bill through the House, get Pelosi to do it, put it on, you know, put it on Schumer's desk, and then let Manchin try to get the 10 votes, okay? Let him do it. Give him, give him, give him three weeks, you know, be like, all right, Joe, go get it. Um, and if at the end of that process, he's got a, he's got a good bill. He's got the bill that he wants, right? The Joe Manchin game is like, uh, you know, eventually comes around to some version of democratic priorities. He just wants to make them less good. <laughs> um, so he, go ahead make it less good, make it less useful, put it on the floor of the Senate. If you can't get 10 Senate, you can't get Republic, 10 Republicans for something that you really believe in. Um, then, Surely at that point, Manchin would say to himself, okay, we got to do it. You know, maybe we do a temporary carve out of the filibuster. We say, we're not going to do filibuster for voting stuff anymore. Uh, we're not going to do filibuster for this or that. Um, and, and, he, and, then, and then maybe then maybe he'll agree to do it. Cinema is much yeah. more of a mystery to me. You read interviews with cinema and it's like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what she's on. You know, like, I, I don't know what the point is. <laughs> 
Um, she, she just seems kind of delusional, honestly. Um, or she, she seems to believe that like her political fate in Arizona is so tied up with this public persona of, uh, of being, being the most mavericky Democrat. Uh, and they both laid down these like very, very sharp markers that they're not going to do away with the filibuster. And so they'd have to walk that back. And I have more confidence that Manchin would do it than cinema. Um, and so they're both a problem, yeah. right? But I, I do think that what has to happen here, they, they have to get a bill that they, they're both on board with. It's like less expansive than what the progressives want. And then have Republicans say no, very publicly. You know, yeah. like, we're not going to do this. Or Republicans attach some like, ridiculous set of conditions where we'd lose half the Democrats on the bill and wouldn't get, get through Congress anyway. Yeah. Like, they have to see that they're wrong. I think that they have to see that they're wrong about this. I can tell you, there is no version of a decent voting rights bill that would get a single Republican vote in the Senate. Not one. So he needs to see that. Sooner or later, he's got to see it. And so I'm with you. I have some optimism. If, if, I, if I had given up, I wouldn't even be writing about politics anymore. <laughs> I'd just be looking for help in that area. So, um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's better to have hope. It's better to keep the pressure on, on your elected officials um, and, and to try to make the case to them in as many ways as we can before you give up, you know. All right. That's as good a spot as, uh, as any to close. A little hope, a little optimism. Uh, <laughs> President Manchin and uh, President Cinema. I say they're co-presidents. I'm not, I'm not going to make one the VP and the other president. And by the way, they wouldn't be the first politician in the history of the United States of America to walk back a position, okay? I think uh, in the city of Chicago, it happens every day. Uh <laughs> Uh, got an elected school board. Yeah, God, like, that's yeah. a whole other story. There. Cannot have democracy. Too much democracy in the city of Chicago, David. It's not good for you. It's not healthy. All right. Um, all right, well, David Ferris, thank you very much uh, for coming on. We, at least once a month he comes on, uh, the, on on our show, our humble little show, and uh, uh, talks about politics. Today we did uh, Middle Eastern affairs. Lord knows what will be in the front pages um, next week. Maybe we should just do a regular Middle Eastern update uh, because uh, this this situation doesn't look like it's going to go away. <laughs> uh, I'll be here as, as many times as you want me on the show. I'm here. All right. Very good. I'll take you up on that. Uh, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.